given in the name of our God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. You might recall that last Sunday I mentioned to you that uh, we find ourselves now in the liturgical season of uh, Pentecost, which is the longest season of the church year. This year, Pentecost lasts for 26 weeks. That's half a year. And during the time of Pentecost, when we celebrate the coming of the Holy Spirit, whom Jesus promised he would send to us to help us to understand the gospel and to have the courage and the fortitude to try to live it in the face of whatever difficulties we might face, that we are celebrating that time. And so the scriptures that are brought to us during the season of Pentecost are scriptures that are rich in reminding us of the core beliefs we must espouse as Christians and that we must endeavor to live by in the daily activity of our lives. The first reading that we had this morning certainly does that in spades. It's a wonderful reading from uh, the book of Samuel. Last Sunday, you remember, the people got tired of being special before God and before their neighbors and wanted to be more like everybody else. And so they wanted a king. And they cried out and prayed for a king. And so God instructed Samuel to give them a king, but also to tell them what great price they would pay for having an earthly king placed over them instead of God himself. And of course the whole history of Israel uh, and the Judean kingdom after they split following the death of, uh, of Solomon uh, is anything but uh, laudatory, uh, something to be praised and to be admired. The kings, all of them, were utter failures with rare exception and led people away from God instead of to God and ended up in the decimation of the Jewish people. So that 10 of the 12 tribes, over 80% of Israel, was lost to the kingdom and were taken off into captivity, never to be seen again. And so now, today we read from Samuel about the rejection of the first king, who was an utter failure. And now God is selecting someone who he says is going to make a difference in the life of Israel. And so he instructs uh, uh, Samuel to go to the home of a man by the name uh, of, uh, can't think of his name, Jesse, thank you. <laughs> thank you, Betty. <laughs> to go to Jesse in the little village of Bethlehem in the midst of the smallest tribe of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin. And there he would appoint, uh, point out to him the one that God had chosen to be king. And we have that wonderful little story of, of Samuel going to uh, Jesse's and asking to see his sons. And Jesse, very, very proud that the great high priest of Israel has come to his house 
with instructions to anoint the future king of Israel that Jesse starts parading out before Samuel all of his sons of whom he is so proud. And so the oldest one comes out and he's a fine specimen of a man. And Samuel is immediately impressed and said this man will make a wonderful king. He just exudes royalty. But God said no that's not the one. Then comes the second son, and then the third son, and then seven of them have parade before Samuel, only to be told by God that they are not the ones, that God has rejected them. And so a bit flustered, Samuel turns to Jesse and said, "Uh, Are these all your sons? And he said, No, I have one more, the runt of the litter. (laughs) David, the youngest probably no more than 16 or 18 years of age. And as the youngest member of the family, he's out where he belongs, out on the hillside of Bethlehem, taking care of the sheep. He's being the shepherd for the family. And so he said, send for him and bring him in. And in comes this young man, ruddy complexion, real outdoorsman. And God tells Samuel, this is the one. And Samuel gets up and anoints him. Now it'll be 10 or 12 years before David assumes the throne. And in that time, he will be sorely tried by circumstances. But he has been anointed as the future king of Israel. And under God's protection and determined to follow God's will, David remains faithful and becomes the greatest king that Israel had and brings them to the pinnacle of leadership within the then known world and they become a power to be dealt with. And of course, the simple lesson from this interesting story is what Jesus himself will tell us 1,500 years later. God's ways or not our ways. And none of us need to be in the business of telling God how to run the universe. Our job is to seek God's will and to obediently follow what God has made eminently clear to us what we are to do as Christians. And that's a very important lesson to learn that our job as Christians is ultimately to seek the will of God and build our life around being faithful what God tells us to do and has made it very clear. And it became all the more clarified when Jesus Christ himself came into this world and spent three years teaching us the basic understanding of Christianity how we are to live as faithful children of God and how we are to take advantage of the many helps and opportunities that God makes available for us to be faithful that we're not left on our own but God has made available to us the Spirit of God that enters the hearts of every Christian 
and whose activity within the church we celebrate during the Pentecost season and to follow the Lord. And that brings us to today's gospel. Another very powerful but very simple truth that we need to learn. We're in the fourth gospel, the fourth chapter of Mark's gospel. And during this particular season of the church year on the cycle that we're on, during this Pentecost season, we're going to be primarily studying the book of Mark. Now, Mark comes second in the Gospels following Matthew. But chronologically, Mark's Gospel is the first Gospel. It's the oldest recorded teachings of Jesus Christ in Christendom. It's the shortest gospel, but it is the earliest gospel. And therefore, it has some very important things for us to study and for us to incorporate uh, into our lives. We're in the fourth chapter, early in the book of Mark, and we're in one of Jesus' first parables that he is teaching. And you need to keep all of these things in mind as we look at that teaching and extract from it what God wants us to take home. Jesus began his teaching in the Galilee, in the northern part of Israel. Now in the far southern part of Israel, in the desert area, is the capital, Jerusalem. And so many things happen in Jesus' life when he goes to Jerusalem because every time he goes, he is confronted by the constabulary of the Jewish church. And they don't set too well with what Jesus is teaching because they see Jesus as a threat to their authority. Instead of trying to listen to Jesus and understand how he is expressing all that the Old Testament has brought to us and see the teachings from God, all they see is someone in competition with them. And so every time Jesus goes to Jerusalem, he gets into trouble. And we tend to think of his ministry as being spent primarily in Jerusalem, but that's not the fact. Jesus avoided Jerusalem like the plague because he knew every time he went down there, his mouth would get him into trouble because as he spoke the truth of the gospel, there would be those who would challenge him, turn against him, and eventually plot his overthrow and execution. So three-fourths of Jesus' teaching was spent in the safety of the Galilee. And he didn't do that in order to insulate himself from the inevitable that awaited him in Jerusalem. He did it because it was the richest soil. It was the place to preach the gospel. Because there in the northern part of Israel was in fact the crossroads of the world. There the ancient trade caravans 
that plied the routes that connected the ancient north and southeast to the north and southwest. They all, in following that caravan trail, they all crossed right in the Galilee. It was being like the intersection of two major interstates. And you know what happens all around the interstate uh, intersections. That's how Jerusalem was. That's how the Galilee was. And here Jesus taught. And therefore he was teaching not only the people who lived in the Galilee who were fishermen and farmers, but he was teaching all of the travelers, non-Jews, who were coming back and forth between the, the areas, spending their nights in the area where Jesus was teaching and hearing his teaching and being exposed to the gospel. So very early, Jesus was out preaching the gospel to people who we would never even think of being associated with the gospel of Jesus Christ until St. Paul, later on after the death of Jesus, starts his missionary journeys and every place that he goes to, he encounters people who have heard of Jesus Christ because the word has spread, the ground has been prepared, the seed has taken root, and people are hungry for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus, here in this early chapter of St. Mark, teaches us a very important lesson as he uses the parables to teach us. And because of where he is, he uses a parable of farming. And the parables that are, are preached by Jesus at this time are called kingdom parables because they all have to do with establishing the kingdom of God on earth. Not a kingdom like, Paul, like uh, uh, David ruled over or Solomon ruled over. Not a material worldly kingdom but a spiritual kingdom of people who had dedicated themselves to searching out God's will in their life and trying to live according to God's will. And so here Jesus is teaching and he gives a very simple kingdom forming parable. And we only read portions of chapter 4 today. I would urge you when you go home today, before you close your eyes in sleep tonight, to sit down quietly in your house and take out your Bible and read all of chapter 4. You can do it in just a few minutes. And then close your eyes and allow your experience that we're having worshiping here today to remind you of what Jesus is saying and to take the whole picture into context and to understand how you fit into that picture because that's what's important, how it affects your life. And so Jesus tells this parable and he tells about a farmer who goes out to sow the seed. And we didn't read it today, but in the, the verses before we took up the reading of the gospel, Jesus talks about the soil in which 
the seed is sown. And we do read that section at other times of the year, and you're all familiar with it. As the sower went out to sow, he threw his seed, and some fell on good ground and, uh, and immediately took root and began to grow. And others fell on hard ground that resisted the seed so that it didn't grow well. And others fell among thorns. So when it did begin to grow, it was choked off by the thorns and the brabble that surrounded it, and it couldn't come to full growth. It was inhibited because of its surroundings. And others fell into open areas where the birds of the air came down and ate it up and took it away, and it had no chance of ever maturing. And Jesus talked to us about that and how, it is, how important it is to prepare your life and your heart to hear the word of God and to allow it to take root in your life. But that's not our lesson for today. Our lesson today is even more preliminary than that. It's about sowing seed. Jesus said, this is the important thing that you need to know, that as Christians you are called to sow the seeds of the gospel. And that's very, very easy to do. Of course, Clemson and Auburn universities and their agricultural experimentations uh, have so improved the farming techniques of the world in which we live in that we forget about how basic they were in Jesus' time. And we can't compare Jesus' teaching to the 21st century way of farming when a farmer gets in his $500,000 combine that is air-conditioned and has a GPS unit in it and a computer and simply pushes a button and sits down and listens to music as the GPS unit shows the combine how to lay out the seed. And all he has to be there is to see that the machinery go. In Jesus' day, seed was broadcast The ground wasn't even plowed. The farmer just went out in the land in the Galilee uh, with a sack of seed and walked up and down his area and just broadcast the seed, threw it out. Very easy. Just broadcast the seed. And that's the image that you need to keep in mind because Jesus said that's what you're called to do, to simply go out and broadcast the seed, throw the seed. Now, what is a seed that you're throwing out? Jesus explains that to the apostles in the gospel. He said, the seed that I'm talking about is the gospel. It's the word that I'm preaching. It's the word. You're simply to go out and to broadcast the word around. As you have received it, you are to make it known to others by simply broadcasting it. And all you have to do is simply sow the seed. You're not responsible for whether it takes root or not. You're not responsible for how long it takes it to grow. You're not responsible for how rich the harvest is going to be. That's God's business. And he said he'll take care of that. What he needs you to do is to sow the seed. And you sow that seed in so many ways. You sow that seed primarily 
in living the Christian life yourself. That's all. So that other people can see a difference in your life and want to know what that difference is. It is not your job to argue with them or to debate with them or to review the gospel unless one of them happened to come to you and ask to sit down and talk. Then you know you've got a wonderful harvest coming when that's coming. But that's a lucky strike extra. That's not something to be expected. So if that happens, be grateful. But Jesus said, don't expect that. Just expect to be faithful in broadcasting the seed. Simply sow the seed. Ways in which we sow the seed is when we're willing to, uh, to love someone who is a bit unlovable, but in the name of Jesus Christ, we're willing to love them and to respect them and to treat them with kindness and with dignity. And when we do that and other people see us doing that, we are sowing the seed. When someone has offended us and instead of seeking revenge, we're willing to love them and forgive them, we're sowing the seed. In all of these examples, that's what we are called to do. To sow the seed. Jesus also mentioned in today's parable that in all the different seeds that are available to farmers, there are some that are very, very small. In fact, when you hold them in your hand, you have to be very careful because if you breathe on the palm of your hands, they will scatter. He talked about the mustard seed, that the seed itself is so small that it's almost insignificant. And yet when it is sown and it grows, it comes to full fruition and blesses the area in which it grows so that the birds of the air can come and put their nest and start their families and feed on that tree. So Jesus is saying he's not expecting us to do big things, spectacular things, heroic things, just the simple things of trying to faithfully live the Christian life. And if you're doing that, you're in the will of God and you're bringing on a harvest. And that's what we are called to do. Way back in the 12th century, there was a man by the name of Francis of Assisi who was born into a very well-to-do family. But he was also educated in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as he compared the gospel of Jesus Christ with the life that he saw his family living among him, them, and how people were being treated and abused in the society in which he lived, he saw a terrible disconnect. And he rejected the ungodly life that was prominent in his day and decided he would simply go back to living the gospel. And so he rejected his benefits from his family, his inheritance, uh, and he put aside all of his fancy clothes and he put on himself the clothes of a beggar 
and he went out into the community looking for the cast-off people of the world that he could care for, that he could love, that he could nurse back to health, that he could live the gospel by. And people saw him and began to follow him. And a whole group of Christian men and women that we know today as Franciscans who have dedicated their lives to following the example of Francis or make, continue to make a great impact almost a thousand years later on the world because of the simple way in which Francis of Assisi lived. And Francis's advice to his followers is everywhere you go, in everything you do, preach the gospel to people. And when necessary, use words. But primarily, it's by the way you live and the example that you offer to others is what has more power because God himself puts power in that action. And you're not doing it by yourself. You're doing it in the will of God and he has pledged himself to co-op with you to bring about a great harvest. And isn't it interesting that today in the 21st century all over the world no matter where you go, you step into a garden somewhere, and what do you find there? A little statue of Francis of Assisi. A little insignificant statue of a man standing there with his hands out so that the birds of the air can come down and rest in his hands, and people very often put seeds in his hands in the garden as one of the ways of feeding the birds, uh, and that he's still giving that silent witness to us almost a thousand years later. And oh yes, I know that a lot of the people who go to the garden shop say, isn't that a cute little statuette? And they buy it and they bring it home and they put it in their garden and they have no idea who Francis of Assisi is or the example that he gave us. And if you know someone who is like that, the next time you visit their home, walk out into the yard with them and say, tell me about this little statuette that you have here. What does it mean? And if they don't know, tell them. And you will be sowing the seed in a very significant way. How simple, how easy it is to be a Christian when we understand what God is asking of us. Go out and be a Christian today. Amen.